Hello. Hey, is that Cersei? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to season three of the fucking Rad Snowboard Podcast. Okay, perfect. One second, please. Hi, this is Sean. I'm not here right now. You have reached Mike. Hi, this is Jim. Leave me a message, and I will call you back as soon as I can. Hi, you've reached Jeremy Jones. Yeah, I'm going to call you back instead. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> hey, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk to interesting snowboarders. Happy New Year. This is the fifth episode of season three. I was super stoked to talk to Cersei Wallace, who I actually thought was from Europe, but she's from just south of me here in the Pacific Northwest. She lives in California now, and she was an influential rider in the early 90s who went on to become the executive vice president at one of the agencies that manages high-profile snowboarders like Travis Rice. I had a really good time talking to her, so let's just hit the interview. Let's just freestyle it and see where we end up. Perfect. So what was your first board? I mean, well, the first time I went snowboarding, I had uh, a trust fund neighbor named Thatcher, which I still to this day is one of the coolest names, who was dating a girlfriend of mine in high school, and I was really into skateboarding, and they talked me into going up to Poodoo in Oregon, and I borrowed a board. I think it was a Woody. And I had a heck of a time with boots and the chair was hitting me in the back of the head and I bit through my tongue and sweat all over the place. But I was totally hooked. And pretty much from that trip on was just the quest for another opportunity to get on mountain. I really, you know, I had grown up in nature. I had totally hippie parents and we would go camping all the time. And I kind of went through this teenage rebellion and got into my kind of more urban punk scene and really rebelled from that but there was something about the convergence of being on a board and being in nature that just felt like super exciting to me and so it just kind of flipped the switch for me because it was uh, an opportunity to kind of marry the things that I loved which was skateboarding and subconsciously nature but it took me a while (laughs) actually acknowledge my love for nature because I had spent so much time as a child that I just was just like, God, if I have to go camping for another weekend, I'm going to shoot myself. (laughs) So, and and, you know, there was a lot of pot smoking and fun, you know, kind of, you know, a little little adventure and debauchery, which was exciting to me. (laughs) I was very taken with it. It was also a real opportunity for some independence, which I uh, could appreciate outside of Eugene, which is really a small-town mentality. After that, it was just like, how do I keep doing this? And um, I had a falling out with my mom, who I was living with in Eugene, and decided to go move in with my dad, who lived in Seattle. Seattle was conveniently located very closely to a variety of mountains, specifically Skiakers, Snoqualmie and, and what was Pack West at the time, which was a small local hill. Um, and they had night skiing. And so I had a boyfriend who had a car and I saved up some money and went to the swap meet and bought my own Sims SE fifteen hundred swallowtail. <laughs> Rad. And I got a job at Starbucks and I hustled and went to school and did everything I could to get to the hill as much as I could and discovered Crystal Mountain and all of these amazing little ski areas that were really the backyard of Seattle and it was just this winter wonderland. And How did we get to Cersei being on ride? 
Well, that was kind of a long journey. I did the Northwest Series. You know, I started editing the Northwest Series. You know, the, the Sims FE then. I went to the swap meet again, <laughs> you know, the next year and then traded it in for a Switchblade. Right. And then, you know, I started getting some okay results at this funky little, you know, Bob Barsky Northwest Series event. Mm-hmm. And then Daryl West, who was the Burton rep, got me on a Burton Proform. Proform that you still had to buy it, but you got it at top. So I had kind of a fun Burton setup. At that point, I started going to Mount Baker a lot more and started establishing a, a friendship with a group of girls, mostly Gillian Kelly, Craig's sister, and a girl named Muffy Luther. (laughs) And we were all young and having fun. And uh, Ingrid Gunderson was one of my best friends, and she had a car and lived in Seattle. She had this awesome Scirocco. That's where I really, like, built my social snowboarding life really uh, developed a community and became I guess probably second generation Mount Baker hardcore because the you know I would say Carter Turk, Dan Donnelly, Jeff Fulton all those guys who were kind of first generation but you know I would say I came in later to that but I was there and we were all riding during the same time so And then, you know, spent a ton of time in Glacier. We funded everyone at Mount Baker Snowboard Shop and the Dobuses. And and then I fell in love with Jamie Lynn. She was like 16 or 17. I had graduated, I think. Yeah, I think I had just graduated when we started dating. And we were together for quite a long time. And that's where doors kind of started to open for me where, you know, we traveled, we were in Tahoe and shot roadkill. And uh, I started to, you know, I would say benefit from the opportunity uh, getting out of the Northwest because that's what was really required. It's so funny. You know, I work with skaters and snowboarders and going to California really is a thing. Like that's what you need to, you know, to make it big is to step outside of your mountain towns. You gotta, you gotta get out in the world. And so we did that. And that really was my break. Roadshow was my debut. At that point, uh, Mervyn was giving me boards because Jamie was their boy and I was just kind of getting on flow from them. They gave me product. Rad. Mike and Pete are so awesome. Were they at the forefront of it at that time? Were they pretty hands-on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were at their shop there on Lake Union and they were grinding boards themselves, making it all happen for mm-hmm. everybody. And I still consider them, you know, friends to this day. And the opportunity that Ride really came at a trade show, we were in Vegas at SIA and I had gotten a little bit of heat from Roadkill, and Tim Pogue and I kind of hit it off. And, you know, I think Tim and Steph were unique. Like, they saw the importance of having a female and that I fit in to their kind of attitude. And, I, you know, I had this really kind of angry, punk rock, fuck the world mentality and not really quite sure why I was so pissed off, except for that <laughs> I think... That tenacity had served me, kind of, you know? Sure. So I relied on that. I would get in fights with other girls and stuff, and I thought that was cool. I always thought, like, because it was a big deal just to have a girl on the team. And you had a full hookup on, like, you had a board on ride. You had a boot on vans. 
Yeah, I I got like some coverage in Blunt, and yeah. I was hanging out with all those guys like in the RV with Sal the Pitbull, and I just, I kind of just fit in with that whole posse, and mm-hmm. so you know, and I think I was really I, I would say I've gotten more modest in my mature years, but I was <laughs> a really good self promoter like within brands. Like I was just like a very vocal advocate for myself and I did at certain times kind of develop a reputation for being, you know, kind of rough around the edges or overly aggressive or opportunistic or all those things. But also like I knew that no one was gonna do it for me. And I really struggled with my years with Jamie because I had my own aspirations and I already then was kind of had this manager attitude and I would help Jamie kind of get his shit together to get deals done and, you know, would help him essentially with his sponsors. So I kind of had this hustle that allowed me a lot of opportunity. And I think too, you know, like Jamie was on Vans and Cheryl Lynn, who was a woman, a good friend of mine who I'm still close with, was at Vans. She was one of their top sales reps. And she advocated for me as a woman internally. And Walter Schoenfeld, who was the CEO at the time, you know, was an elderly gentleman, but also like understood the importance of women in the space and mm-hmm. really gave me a shot. And that boot crushed it. Like we, it. we sold so, I mean, you know, I always say I live in Cardiff and I bought a piece of property and built a house here and I call it the house that snowboarding built. And it really was that opportunity that allowed me to be here and in this home. That's and, so rad. You know, there's not, yeah, it's not a day that goes by that I don't have a little moment of gratitude for that. It was me kicking and screaming and yelling and saying women are a part of this and they're buying products and I want to be the one to help do that. And so as annoying as I was, it did work for me. <laughs> <laughs> How was that juxtaposition, you kicking and screaming for a boot and Jamie just like, is the kind of myth of Jamie true? It's just like he let his style talk for him. And, and like, so did you actually advocate for Jamie's boot as well? Or did that, that was just going to happen because he's Jamie Lynn? And Yeah, I think that would have happened with or without me. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jamie's, you know, Jamie's still a very kind of reserved and modest. I mean, he, he's, he is one of the greatest talents I have ever known in my life uh, across many art forms, Mm -hmm. you know, and he is just a very uh, unique and special person. And I have a lot of gratitude for the time that we spent together. You know, I would say with absolute conviction that, you know, he's one of the great loves of my life. And I really, I just think he is, you know, he's battled his demons. Mm-hmm. And the Northwest can be dark. Yeah. And I got out of I I came and I chased the light and I made a life for myself um, here in Southern California that has been really truly heaven on earth. Like I'm so lucky, I'm so blessed I have this beautiful family and I still get to do this thing that I love despite some pretty old news. I probably need some new replacement in there very near future but I still get out there and you know I love snowboarding it's one of the great joys of my life and it brought me so much it brought me Ava Andy and I met in Australia on a trip and we fell in love and proceeded to have this 10 plus year adventure that that resulted in 
Ava, our teenage daughter, and, and Andy and I are no longer married, but we are like best friends. He lives down the street from me. His wife is one of my best friends. We surf together. We vacation together. His two sons uh, are very close with my daughter. And we have this really great unorthodox family tribe. Snowboarding brought me that too, you know? So cool. Okay, I'm going to interrupt here to tell you about our sponsors. Wired Snowboards, run by Rob Dow, who's been making snowboards and designing snowboards probably since about 1991. He may have been the first person to actually get a proper twin-tip board made. 92, maybe, Virgin Snowboards. I saw one of those boards in 93 when I worked at the Boardroom Snowboard Shop, our other sponsor. I trust Rob to design a really good board, and guess what? I got to try one, a 56 Directive. They loaned it to me while they're finishing the board that I ordered, which is a 62 Swallowtail I'm really excited about. And this 56 Twin Tip rode amazingly. So it's the first time in a long time that I've rode a dedicated camber board. I rode the board like six days and fell in love with it. And you will too. Go to their website, enter offer code FNRAD, F-N-R-A-D at checkout and receive 10% off a high quality board made in Canada. I'm really stoked to have them on as a sponsor. And remember, if you guys buy 10 of these boards, I get a free one next year. So you're not only getting an amazing board, you're helping me. That's cool. Boardroom Snowboard Shop is Vancouver's premium snowboard shop. They've got great brands. They've got guaranteed lowest prices. They've got a performance guarantee on everything that they sell. They sell to Canada and the United States online, so you can order stuff if you have a shipping address in one of those two countries. Yeah, and again, we've got the offer code FNRAD5 for anything that is on sale at the shop. You'll get 5% more off that price. Or FNRAD10 gets you 10% off any regular priced item on the website, so go there and do that. All right, back to the show. Oh, yeah, I rode for some <clears throat> shitty brands. I think, you know, once I lost Ride, Ride got bought by K2, and then yeah. they tried to fire me. They they hired this really awful CEO. I think his name was Bob Silver, and we yep. called him the Silver Tongue Snake, <laughs> and destroyed this beautiful thing. So I sued them. They ter- terminated my contract while I was injured promoting them. So I, I, I challenged them, and I found a lawyer in Seattle to take me on contingency, a woman. Her name's Susan Fox. Yeah. It went to arbitration. She made me write my own case because it was on contingency, so she didn't want to do any of the work, but yeah. she helped me frame it up, and they settled. So I took that money and that experience and took some time to kind of think about, you know, what was next for me and what did I want to do? And I knew I wanted to stay in the business. I, you know, I've always been kind of an idealist and I was just like, you know, all of these big multinational Fortune 500 companies were coming in and buying up snowboarding and, you know, the FIS was taking over snowboarding in the Olympics. And I just felt like a lot of injustice and Mm -hmm. felt like the best way for me to stay in the business and continue to uh, lean on the things that I thought that I, you know, I was good at was to manage talent. And so I worked with Steve, who was a TM at Lamar, to start the first agency specializing in action sports athlete management and started signing my own clients. And Yeah, this is the same agency that Kevin Jones signed to. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's incredible. Yes. So who who are some of I mean, I don't want you to have to handpick your favorites, but 
Who are some of the big Oh, I can that, tell you who yeah. my favorites are real easy. I mean, in snowboarding, it's yeah. Travis Wright, Nicholas Mueller, Tori Bright, Yuri Bloodlachikov, Scotty Lego, and, you know, a myriad of others that I've worked with over the years. But right. that's who I work with, Hannah Beeman. Nice. These are people I love, and they're all super dynamic and totally different and would make any of them my children's godparents. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, these are people who I've worked with for over a decade. And been through, you know, highs and lows and continue to stay connected to on a lot of levels. How difficult is it to make it in the snowboard industry now for professional snowboarders? Oh, God, it's fucking impossible. I mean, the rise of Amazon and the conglomeratization of brands is the death nail of the unique culture and beauty of snowboarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's crazy because snowboarding has been taken over at so many levels so many times like from the early 80s yeah. to like that that first wave in the 90s and then even ride was a concept brand you know what i mean like they were like ready to yeah. make it public but when they were starting it they're like this is a great opportunity to make a bunch of cash they were the first public company so they were like you know, I can yeah. remember being like, selling their stuff and being like, this stuff is awesome. But in the back of my mind, being like, this is also going to be the death of everything cool in snowboarding, it feels True. like. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's just the, <clears throat> I guess, the ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. Right? Things trend in and out. There's always people looking to exploit trends mm-hmm. for financial gain a lot of people made a lot of money some of us made enough money but those days are over mm-hmm. so what would be so, do you have any examples of <laughs> like times that a, a rider would call you up and say buick's gonna give me cars for life or something like that and you're like oh my god please don't oh yeah, yeah. i mean you know listen i'm like i'm a facilitator for people all i do is gather information mm-hmm. and then they make it available to them to make educated decisions. I don't ever decide anything for anybody. If they want my advice, I give it to them. Mm -hmm. Usually I do. But really, you know, it's like I work with individuals who all have their own dreams and aspirations, and everyone's different. I've kind of gotten a lot mellower over the years where I just feel like as long as the work is being done, the right things fall into place. It's not just like you know, I'm this manifester and I sit and meditate and things show up, but I do pick up the phone and make information available and have enough relationships within the space that I can, you know, facilitate some visibility for opportunity. That's really all I do is kind of try to bring people together or help athletes, you know, navigate the waters to make good decisions and allow them sustainable relationships. Because I learned pretty early on that, you know, you got to make as much as you can while you can. And there's the right time for certain things. Like, you know, when you're on your upward, you want to make sure you're making relationships with brands that are going to survive, have other categories to ensure that they can pay their bills. And, you know, I'm very supportive of endemic startups and unique brands and you know, it has just gotten exponentially harder to do anything in the space. Manufacturing is difficult. It's just nearly impossible. So now I'm much more supportive of doing business with VF or some other brands that I may 
take issue with how they do certain things, but I can't be such an idealist that I don't understand the importance of sustainable income and opportunity for athletes. Unfortunately, that's where we're at. Here's a throwback question. Did you ever patch up that falling out with your mom? I'm sure you did, obviously. Oh, yeah. My mom is like one of my best friends. Yeah, we're all good. We're great. I'm good with all my parents. Oh, yeah. I was an awful teenager. (laughs) I really was. I was really angry and and resentful. You know, my parents broke up and moved around a lot. I was pissed off and it wasn't until I got a little bit older and could process some of that and move through that. But I did and everyone's great. Cool. Hold on one second. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> trying no to problem. trying to plan my surf. Oh, nice. <laughs> Perfect. What is surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding for you today? I would say, you know, skateboarding is purely business for me at this point. I don't do it anymore. My mm-hmm. body can't handle it. I have a deep appreciation for its form. I obviously, you know, I've represented the greatest skateboarders of all time. I, I worked for Costin. I represented P-Rod for 15 years. I have had so many incredibly dynamic and, and talented skaters that I've worked with, but I am really, really frustrated with the skateboarding landscape on business. I think it's inherently misogynistic and super shallow and kind of pretty negative. Kearns talked about it how he would go to the skate park as like a noob and they would, you know, throw his shit in the river and tell him to get the fuck out of there. And PD talks yeah. about it too, saying like, oh, it's just like something you have to go through because if you can handle the negativity, then once you're in there, it's such like a great group of guys. But like you say, guys, there's no female skater. Yeah, no, it's really unevolved. And, mm-hmm. you know, I keep kind of hoping there's going to be some kind of transformation and, But, you know, it really is a beautiful thing for if you're in the right clique, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Brazilians are so amazing. Like Mm -hmm. they love each other. They help each other out. They feed their families, right? Right. But all the American skaters pretty much hate on them because they're (laughs) Brazilian. Blatant racism. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. There's beauty in it, but there's also a lot of darkness. And I just, I think for me, like, I really have made some conscious choices of how I want to live my life. And and there's just a lot of elements of skateboarding that repel me. I I have great athletes. I represent this kid, Jagger Eaton, who's phenomenal. Deshaun Jordan, who's, like, just a beast. You know, I've got this, like, incredible roster. And I love them. And I love what they do. And I don't miss a contest or video part. or I love it. But as an industry, it's pretty disappointing and I feel bad that it's so behind in its ability to be progressive. Has your idea of the snowboarding industry changed over the years? Like, Oh, hold on. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, no problem. It's just a job. You know what I mean? The true core shredders are the ones who like literally work the lifts to get on the mountain as much as possible. It's true, like the Aussies who come over to... Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and they live in shitty quarters and dorm <laughs> housing to get their shred on. Or, you know, mountain guides in Chamonix who spend their whole summer, you know, rock climbing and then, you know, touring all winter long. Like, mm-hmm. those those are the true core enthusiasts, and they don't buy products. The, the, the consumerism of snowboarding doesn't line up with core enthusiasts anymore and so i think there's just it's just been kind of homogenized in an effort to sell products you know i mean i think burton sucks 
I mean, I think Burton's <laughs> always sucks. So that's, that's nothing new. Yeah, um, it was a couple of years for me in there. Like those Craig Kelly years, I like those. And then the first couple of Terry boards and Jeff Brushy boards. Yep. Those were the glory days, yeah. right? Yeah. They were just fun. And it was so celebratory. And it was just like, God, how good were the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the best time in snowboarding for sure ever. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone was thriving. Everyone was having a good time. Everyone was relatively healthy. There was a lot of exploration on every front. Things hadn't been discovered yet. Yeah, it was. It was was a blank canvas, and Mm -hmm. we all got to play a part in, like, finding it. And it's too bad that it turned into such a dog. Yeah. But the bottom line is, and, you know, I get to represent Nicholas Mueller. You know what I mean? Like, Nicholas Mueller is, is, I've worked with for, you know, 13, 14 years. Like, these are people who remind me every time we talk that the beauty of, of snowboarding is in its action. I still have that. I still get to go out there and I get to take my kids and Ava's totally shredding now and Hemingway learned how to ski last year and we get to go on family trips and I get to go to Jackson and do hot laps with T. Rice. It doesn't get any better than that and I am so lucky and there's you know, not a day goes by that I don't have like a deep appreciation and gratitude for the opportunity in this lifetime to have had, you know, so many days that I can't even count of just epic powder, the, the most joyful, fun, heart-expanding, explosive, ridiculousness, the best shit ever. Yeah, that's the incredible. The best time ever in my whole life outside of being a mom and the joyful, you know, experience of birth and, and mm-hmm. mothering it has been on the hill. That's so rad. I didn't even realize it until a couple of years ago. Like, this is that nature thing you're talking about. Like, look around you. We're in the mountains. This is insane. There's, like, forests. and Plus, it's the most fun thing you could do on the planet. It's the ultimate playground. It, it really is. is. Yeah. You just seem like someone who has their life sorted. Were you always on a mission? Well, you know, it's been a constant journey. I mean, I have been through so much just even in the last few years. Like, I had some health stuff going on. And, you know, being an agent has been, I will say, the first few years of Ava's life. Like, I wasn't really present, Mm. you know. I mean, I traveled with her everywhere. Like, I loved her. She was totally attached to me. I would nurse her in meetings. But I had, like, these massive career aspirations. Right. Like I was going to I had people who doubted my ability to transition out of snowboarding into a successful career. And that like put the fire in me like nothing else where I was just like, you know what? I know what I'm capable of and I'm capable of great things. And I'm going to do everything I can to be the most fully realized person in my life. And I still feel that way. And every day, you know, I'll do like a daily practice of, okay, what do I want? And how do I get there? And and I always end up in the same place, which is I want health, happiness, and a family. And everything else, all of the career stuff, really was just a catalyst for me to have the resources to create the life that I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And I feel like I'm really proud of myself for that because I didn't come from, I didn't go to college. I didn't, you know, I was just a 30 snowboard rat. And I'm raising, like, incredibly dynamic and intelligent children. My teenager is about to commit to college as a sophomore on a soccer scholarship at 
you know, one of the nation's top universities. Rad. You know, I have a, a beautiful, loving relationship with my husband and our four-year-old daughter and my ex-husband and his family. That all of that was from the experience that I got through snowboarding, which was an opportunity to realize what I was capable of. So dope. And so I try, I try to continue, like, you know, I know I'm never, you know, of course I went through phases of, like, I don't know, I, I, I hung out with, like, Mike Rankwit and John Palmer <laughs> and the people who projected confidence and ego and all those things. Those were my mentors. Those are the people that I looked up to. And so I, there were certainly times in my life where I projected overconfidence and was totally cocky asshole. But... That was all just part of the path, and now I really, I try to be humble and respectful while still, you know, we live in times of the pussy-grabbing president, yeah. and I am a, I'm a high-level female executive at one of the largest sports agencies in the world, and I never really realized how systemic sexism and oppression of women is in the workplace until the last 10 years when I tried to break through the ceiling. When I really tried to go, okay, what's next for me? How do I, how do I get beyond this? And it's suffocating and incredibly difficult. And I, I'll tell you, like, what's going on in the world is super painful, but also really exciting because, you know, this whole Me Too movement, the Harvey Weinstein, it broke the seal. And there is something about the kind of men that are showing up to support women and the change, the shift in consciousness to understanding what sexism does to us culturally and despite kind of this polarization and divisiveness that this administration has brought um, it's also an incredible opportunity for progress and mm -hmm. I feel so excited that's dope I feel so excited yeah there's a thing going on now that people are starting to vocalize the fact that listen it's not enough to be not sexist anymore like the system's set up so that it doesn't need any sexist men in it to work. If you just go along being like just a regular non-sexist dude, women are still getting paid less. Women are still being demeaned in media and in the whole system. It's just the system is set up to keep them as second-class citizens. So you need to be willing to speak out against injustices. And when you see them, you need to step up and speak out. And when people talk about them, you need to step up and support them and say, no, it's not okay for people to start asking the same stupid sexist questions. What was she wearing? That's not okay anymore. They... But for me as a woman, mm -hmm. listening to you say that, that is the change that is happening. Mm -hmm. Like, you know this. Mm -hmm. You you feel that in, in your own free will mm -hmm. that you play a role in this you get to help lift us up and totally. that feels good to you yeah it's i mean it, it brings me to my knees yeah. that this is that we're even having this conversation mm -hmm. right like you're yeah. just a snowboarder dude who loves snowboarding who yep. i'm sure we're close in age i'm sure you come from you know an okay background and all of your needs are met and, totally. and you just said the truth i can't even thank you <laughs> for understanding yeah, it's totally. It's fucking huge. I have a daughter, so it's, it's so like, awesome. 
You're a Canadian. You guys are a special breed. Anyways, we're way off snowboarding, but we've got some great. Yeah, <laughs> we are. I've, some really, really I've enjoyed stuff. it immensely. Yeah, thanks so much for talking to me, and couldn't be more happy that snowboarding is, you know, at its core has people like you helping run in the day to day. That's epic. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. What do you do? I'm a mailman. <laughs> Oh, awesome. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it allows me to snowboard a lot, so. Let's keep in touch. I would love to take a couple laps with you. We're definitely going to come to Whistler at some point. I'm going to bring the whole family. I feel like I made two friends. Yeah, exactly. Same. That's rad. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Cersei, for doing the interview. I got a bunch of effing rad shoutouts to get through this week, starting with Myro from Spy. Myro gave me a pair of goggles that are amazing. The legacy in old school white with retro orange strap and a couple of happy lenses. I've ridden them a few times this week. They're amazing. It's so fun having new goggles. New stuff is the best. Speaking of goggles, I also have to thank Steve from Burton, who got me a pair of... Uh, he hooked me up with a pair of Anon M3s, and those guys, along with the Spy's, They both have, like, lenses you can change while the goggle's still on your face. That's changed my life, man. I used to take my goggles off, put them in the goggle bag, and stuff them in my pocket so they wouldn't get fogged up while I was hiking. And now I just take the lens off and slide it in my pocket. And it keeps me from sweating. And go to boardroomshop.com where you can buy both these goggles. Get a pair of Anon M3s or a pair of Spy Legacies. Those things are awesome, man. I really love those goggles. I also want to thank Matt at Cypress helped me out at guest services and gave me some lift tickets for my kids and my wife. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Thanks again to Wired in the boardroom and all our listeners. Hey, thanks to AOC24 for the Apple Podcast Review. Get in touch with me on the Facebook page and I'm going to send out some Vans swag for you courtesy of Mike Strato at Vans Canada. That guy's the best, too. So AOC24, you know who you are. Send me a message, and you can pick from the stuff that I got in the box in my room. Be sure to come back next week for another episode of the Fucking Rad Snowboarding Podcast brought to you by Bike Room Productions.